0: Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of Scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Last week, I introduced you to how heaven is a transient place. It's less like a home and more like a train on its way to a destination. And heaven is... A world waiting for its wedding. And we looked at the tabernacle as a means to understand the journey of God's presence. And this sort of idea of God's presence moving from heaven to earth and that relationship between the two is something we're going to continue to unpack. So now we move to where our focus will be the next few weeks in the book of Revelation. To give you a sort of roadmap, today we want to uncover how the scene of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5 unlocks a whole new meaning of how we're to understand the relationship between God and man, heaven and earth, life above and life below. Next week, we'll begin to look at more of the details about our future hope, the eternal state, um, the new creation found in Revelation 21 and 22. Because most of our time is going to be based in the text in the Book of Revelation, I created bonus content that will be releasing tomorrow, titled "How to Read the Book of Revelation Responsibly." My hope is to simply introduce you to uh, more of this literature and how you cannot read this book as you would, let's say, the Gospel of Matthew. The genre and literature of the book of Revelation is apocalyptic, and it is symbol-laden, and it's not to be read literally or laxadaisically. You have to approach it a different way. So the bonus content I created should be helpful. Uh, Check it out if you're interested. If you're not, that's okay. You don't have to listen to that. That's bonus content. Anyways, the throne room vision found in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. This is perhaps the closest thing we get to a vision of what heaven is like right now. And yet, it's not a tour of heaven meant to make us excited about what's to come. The scene is in heaven, the realm and dwelling place of God, but the significance of what happens in the scene is not confined to heaven. It invades earth. There's an inbreaking between the fabric of heaven and earth within this scene, and we cannot miss this. Jesus' ascension to heaven changed everything concerning our life on earth. And this vision of heaven and the party going on there shows us that the party has a purpose, as you will see. So, an overview of Revelation 4 and 5. This constitutes a single vision, sometimes called the throne room vision. Revelation 4 and 5 should be read and understood together. And then also Revelation 4 and 5 is the interpretive key to the whole book of Revelation. Basically, if you misunderstand these two chapters, uh, you're probably going to misunderstand the most of Revelation as a whole. So, Revelation chapter 4 is the setting. Chapter 5 is the drama. Revelation 4 uh, presents heaven's reality despite chaos on earth. Revelation 5 is heaven's answer to earth's problem. Revelation 4 presents and highlights the throne of God and creation. Revelation 5 highlights the Lamb of God and redemption. Revelation 4 uh, shows God the Father seated on the throne, unrivaled. And Revelation 5 presents God the Son ascending the throne, joining the Father in unison. Alright, so that's great and all, but what does this all mean? Why is this vision here? Revelation 4 and 5... The throne room vision exists to pull back the curtain and show God's vantage point on reality. We're given these words so we too can peek our heads behind the curtain to get the the behind-the-scenes scoop on God's reality as John saw it and is writing it for us. This vision helps us understand the past, present, and future and helps us see how all these things fit together. John goes there and sees a vision so overwhelming You can feel his struggle in trying to communicate all he saw. So let's dive in and start to see this. Revelation 4, 1 through 3. Let's start there. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. All right. All right, so John didn't just go anywhere in heaven. He was taken up to the throne room itself. The throne was always seen as the central focal point of the cosmos in Jewish thought. Where God's throne was, that's the place the whole universe was governed. So now John describes how the one seated on the throne, which is obviously God, appears. And it's not what we would expect. When we as finite creatures are trying to describe the infinite to a finite audience, we have to use simile, metaphor, analogy, and other symbolic language to try to describe it. We don't have the proper vocabulary or categories, so we use like language. And let's try this. Imagine you're speaking to someone who has never seen the snow before, and not only never seen it, but doesn't even know what the snow is. How would you describe snow to someone who's never seen or doesn't know what it is? Go ahead. Oh, wait. Struggle with it. How is John supposed to communicate the glory of seeing God on the throne to us when we have no category ready to comprehend it? The best he can do is describe his appearance with colors of precious stones the jasper stone could be anything of the red, green, or blue variety. Carnelian is a fiery red stone, probably reflecting God's fierce passion that burns. He's, he's a zealous and passionate God. And much can be said about the personality of God, but he can never be described as stoic or callous, that's for sure. And God's throne has a, a rainbow around it, colored like an emerald, a dazzling, radiant green color. It sounds a lot like what you would read about if you read Ezekiel 1, through 28, which you can do on your own time. The closest thing I can think of here as a picture is the Northern lights, you know, the, the green in the sky that like seems to dance around and uh, imagine that in a, like a rainbow shape around God's throne. I, I just imagine a beautiful scene. And so John describes God's appearance exclusively in terms of color and light. And the Psalmist in Psalm one oh four two imagines imagine something similar. Psalm 104.2 says, and speaking of God, he wraps himself in light as if it were a robe. And look, God is not constrained to a body like we are. He could appear however he wants, and he chooses to use colorful light as a robe to wrap wrap himself in. And so far, the vision should simply captivate our imagination and leave us in wonder of how beautiful our God is in the colorful world and throne he dwells in worshipped there as the king that he is. Let's keep going. Revelation 4, 4 4-8. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, There's so much there, and we honestly just don't have time for the, all the kind of nitty-gritty in-the-weeds details because we're going to lose sight of the big picture. But if you're interested in any of those details that we don't touch on, reach out to me. Uh, in, in fact, also in my book, The Dawn of the New Creation, I actually go into a lot more detail on each of those details. Uh, so we address things like, uh, you know you know, the holiness of God in there and what it means that there was uh, flashes of lightning and uh, the seven spirits of God. What is that? So all that's addressed there. Uh, If you don't want to read the book, go ahead and just reach out to me. I'd be more than glad to answer any of those. But one thing I do want to ask you and discuss real quick are, who are the 24 elders in this passage? The 24 elders who are seated on 24 thrones around the throne, who are they? And while there's some disagreement on this, uh, some people think they're angels, but I don't buy it for many reasons. One being elders is a term that's never used of angels. But more importantly, I think that it's a compelling case that these are redeemed believers of both the Old and New Testament eras. Because of the supplemental proof in like Revelation seven eleven, for example, where angels are clearly differentiated from the 24 elders. Revelation seven eleven says this. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God. So they're differentiated from the elders. It says all angels, and then it said, along with the elders. So I don't think these are angels. These are redeemed believers. And twelve plus twelve equals twenty-four. Twelve tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, twelve apostles of Jesus in the New Testament. This is the old Israel and the new Israel coming together to form the true Israel, spanning all eras of time and all nations, fulfilling the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, where God declared his intention was to make a people of himself from every nation, every background. And what are these people wearing? What are these 24 elders wearing? They're wearing crowns, uh, which you can also find in Revelation 2.10, 311 you can also find the crown motif talked about in 1 Corinthians 925 2 Timothy 48 James 112 1 Peter 54 point being there are a few different places in the New Testament and it's pretty intentional you see pretty consistently crowns are going to symbolize uh, God's reward to those who are of faith those who believe in him it's the reward of and what he gives is it's a sort of like position of royalty and that he grants them. You are now God's royal person. You are, um, that's a reward that you're given a crown. And notice how all the believers, you know, all the 24 elders, which by the way, let me just remind you, the 24 elders, that's not literally 24 of them, and that's it. That's not the point. Again, the number 24 is being symbolic to describe that these are redeemed believers. Why do it? Because it's apocalyptic literature and that's how it describes things and pictures and images and metaphor and analogy and all that. And so 24 elders just means all redeemed believers. Everyone from the old era of the Old Testament and the new era of the New Testament, everyone that has gone before us is there in heaven worshiping as one of them crowned there. And notice how there, there's, everyone's given a crown. There's not some in hierarchy over others. There's not, oh, some have a crown, some don't, some have a bigger crown than others. than other. No, no, that's, that's not the case. In God's economy in the new creation or in his kingdom, it's the triune God who reigns as king and we reign as kings and queens with him, submitted to him, loved by him, but not within hierarchy within one another. You know, every concept of, Uh, governance, if you will, that we are used to is where even humans are reigning over humans to some sort of a degree of hierarchy. But that's not the case that we see here. And I I find that quite interesting. And it's pretty amazing too that uh, John doesn't name drop any big name heroes of the faith like Abraham, Moses, David, or Paul, because that's not the point. God is the focus. There's no hierarchy of status or reward between believers. We will all stand as equals, all bearing a crown. Nowhere in the Bible does it make it seem like some people's crown will be better or bigger or more prominent than others. In God's economy of grace, equality of reward is the payout to all believers. And that's all I will say for that for now, because I'm actually going to devote a whole week's worth of content and episode to the question of rewards in heaven in a few weeks, because this is something I'm really passionate about. So let's move on for now. Revelation 4, 9 through 11 reads this. Heaven is a place of expressive and emotional praise, and that's something we probably have heard often. Heaven's a place of everlasting worship, you know, something of that manner. And, you know, if if our eternal you know, responsibility or privilege was just to sing songs, worshiping God for all eternity, which, spoiler alert, it's not, um, it would still be a glorious destiny. So let's just say that. And I would also like to point out that whether it be in heaven or on earth, to praise God is not to initiate a song, but to join a chorus who has been praising its creator far before we were ever even born. In God's reality, if we get to peel back the veil, again, Revelation 4 and 5 is a pulling back the veil of reality you see God's vantage point. Seeing heaven, the, the tearing apart our vision to see his vision. Pulling back the veil, pulling back the curtain. And in God's reality, everything dances and everything sings. Everyone and everything praises Him. That's the meaning of passages like Psalm 96, where we find the stars and the moon and the mountains and the sea all praising God. Dare I say that that's not just some sort of metaphor, but the truer reality that our spiritual senses fail to detect If we got to see what John saw, the perception of reality with the curtain pulled back, I bet we would see even our world a lot more alive than we do. We would see all of creation singing its song, a song as old as time itself. So when we willfully choose to engage in praise, we're actually joining the chorus of creation in heaven on earth, praising the one who is worthy, the one on the throne who clothes himself in radiant light and color, and it's beautiful acknowledging him as he is. And so I guess, as a tangent, I guess it perplexes me when people object to Christianity because we don't claim that every person goes to heaven. But let me say this. Everyone who wants to take God up on his invitation to spend eternity in relationship with him will get it. He won't turn anyone away in that degree. But I've talked to some who, at least at the moment, were repulsed by the idea of spending eternity with God. And at least they had an honest view of what heaven is. Heaven is only heaven because God is there. If God moved out of heaven to somewhere else, uh, then heaven would no longer be heaven. Wherever God's presence is manifest and unveiled there, that place is heaven. So to go to heaven is to go to the place where God is the center of all life. And he is the joy of meaning and meaning of life in heaven. And there, no one rivals him for the glory that belongs to him alone. No one does. So if someone wants nothing to do with God and to worship him and to know him and praise him and all of that, then they should want nothing to do with heaven. Because not only is God in heaven, God is heaven. He's the very center of life in heaven, and he receives all the glory there. If those who oppose God are allowed to enter heaven, then heaven would just become another fallen world like this one. And that's not good. So tangent over. I thought that's helpful. We'll probably talk about that again sometime. And so all of this is great with Revelation 4, a ton of details we passed over, but we're just uh, getting a picture of the setting here because Revelation 4 is the setting, Revelation 5 is the drama. And we kind of have to ask, and maybe you've already wondered it. Well, okay, we're seeing God here. Great. Where's Jesus in this vision? And don't worry, he's moments from entering the scene. The setting had to be placed before the drama, and Jesus is going to help show us that. This is the whole purpose of this episode today. So let's go. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. So what is going on here? Think about first how powerful this angel's voice had to be to announce this challenge to all the galaxy. The challenge is to have someone, anyone, break the seals and open the scroll. And only someone who is worthy would be able to open it. Now you might be wondering, what's the big deal with this scroll? Because it has to be a big deal if the silence of no one stepping forward to answer the challenge causes John to weep. It is what is written on the scroll that is so significant. It contains the righteous judgment of God and his plan to bring history as we know it to its appointed end, culminating in the birth of the new creation. It's the book of cosmic destiny for everything. And on its plan is the decree to secure and rescue the world. And John weeps because if the scroll is not open, then evil wins. There's no greater feeling of hopelessness than what John weeps about here. To feel like there's no hope and to see the undoing of evil, but to see evil go unchecked and to see that evil will not be stopped. The scroll is sealed with seven seals, uh, the number of completeness, but also foreshadowing the seven judgments that would come from each seal being broken. So the scroll is about salvation accomplished through judgment. And often we think of judgment exclusively with negative connotations, but the biblical concept can also be a celebratory thing because judgment has a good side to it too. It's about God making all things right. Psalms like Psalm 96, 97, and 98 come to mind because they're great examples since they personify in various aspects of creation, celebrating the coming judgment of God. Because God's judgment brings deliverance from sin, deliverance from death and decay. And all the evil that destroys God's good world gets dealt with. So if the scrolls never open, then there will be no justice administered. And without justice administered, we have no salvation of the world. And without salvation, we have no new creation, which is the fundamental objective of everything. Man's kind, mankind's trajectory is so bad that handed over to our own demise, we would literally self-implode and destroy each other and the world. It's just a matter of time. So if no one's worthy to open the scroll, then there's no hope for sal- salvation for anyone. And it's like this action movie I just pictured here in which time is ticking away and evil is on the verge of victory, except this is no movie. John is not watching a movie. He's watching the most real uh, event in history. The mighty angel asks, who can break the seals and open the scroll? And heaven falls silent. We have a problem. And we would weep with John too. But the text doesn't end there. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Wow. Okay. Um, I don't know if I'm more excited or terrified. Like, <clears throat> how do you draw a coherent picture of what was just described? Welcome to apocalyptic literature, people, where the mixing of metaphors is something to be expected. It's not meant to present a congruent picture that can be drawn, but to a multidimensional description that challenges the imagination to expand its borders. And I must say, as Westerners, we need to revive our imagination. We have lost the art of awe and the imagination that our ancestors and our faith had. But we can get it back, and we must. And so notice what happens. One of the 24 elders consoles John and says to him, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. Notice how this is worded. It's not as if the lion will conquer he has conquered his victory is written in history and is now a past action the lion has prevailed and i imagine john trying to clear the glossy look from his eyes as the residual tears make their way down his face confused but encouraged he looks to see what the elder had told him and it's not a lion standing there it's a lamb a slaughtered lamb so this lion lamb imagery is quite interesting. It seems like a contradiction at first, but in apocalyptic imagery, of course, it's both. Is Jesus the lion or the lamb? He's both. The lion, an Old Testament symbol of strength and royalty, and uh, Jesus is the Christ. He came from the line of David. This is the messianic king, the conqueror. But when John turns and see, it's not the lion's stain. There's the slaughtered lamb, which cannot be more exaggerated and how shocking this would be. There's no more of a greater contrast in the animal kingdom, at least to them, than the lion and the lamb. And again, it's not a contradiction. Jesus is the lion lamb. He bears symbolic traits of both. How do you think of this? How, how do you see traits of both uh, the lion and the lamb in the person and work of Jesus? Now, as the lion, he's the strong conqueror. He's the king. As the lamb, he's the sacrificial animal, the innocent, and the humble. The language depicting Jesus as a slaughtered lamb is a graphic one, and it comes from Isaiah 53.7, where the prophesied Messiah would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. This makes us think of when John the Baptist cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And then in 1 Corinthians 5.7, Paul declares Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You would take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over your house. This goes back to the very first Passover in the book of Exodus at the time of Egypt. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. So, yeah. But both words, standing and slaughtered, are in the perfect tense in the Greek. Communicating a sort of continual effect and result from the past action. It shows how the permanence of the biting results that came from his sacrifice. It was a once and for all sacrifice that Christ did upon the cross. And although Christ rose from the dead with a glorious body, he kept the scars of the cross as a permanent token, a reminder of his love for us and the cost to redeem us. This makes me reflect on the words of the prophet Isaiah when God said, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hand. Just a permanent token of his love and willingness to give his life for our redemption, for our ransom. So likewise, kind of like slaughtered was in the perfect tense, standing is in the perfect aspect as well. There's a permanence not only to the effects of his death for us, but there's a permanence to the life that he has taken up. His resurrection was so effectual that death has no longer any effect on him. The grave could not contain him. And it's worth noting that where our Lion, Lamb, Savior is standing, notice where he is in the text. He's at the center of the throne, the place where only God can stand. In Revelation 7:17, 7, we see Jesus continuing to ri- reside at the center of the throne when it says, For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He's standing at the center. The throne of God, hence more, is ref- referenced as the throne of God and the Lamb in the rest of the book of Revelation. Where there's only one throne, there are two occupants. And that's because Jesus shares in the essence of the divine identity. He is not a created being. He is not a lesser creature. He is co-equal and co-eternal and co-creator with God. We call this sort of idea uh, the Trinity. And maybe we need to have an episode about this sometime. And we definitely will to explain that a little bit more. Yeah, This Jesus, He's he's the one, the only one who is worthy to take the scroll. And he approaches the throne of the Father with confidence because... That is equally his throne too. He takes the scroll and begins to wield its power. And he, we begin to see that he's heaven's answered earth's dire need. He is our savior, our champion. He has rid our hearts of sin's power. And now he'll open the scroll and the, rid the world of the curse of sin too. Whereas evil had been prevailing, it's now the power of darkness that has a ticking time clock running against it. The curse of sin is on limited time. As the lamb has taken the scroll of salvation, he's began to unleash its plan. Even right now, it's been inaugurated. And now you might be thinking, great, well, why didn't he just fix everything right that second then if he took the scroll, meaning the salvation plan? Well, rest assured, God's plan is unfolding. It is in motion. And ultimately, his justice is delayed, but not denied. You heard that right. God's justice is delayed, but not denied. It's delayed because eradicating all evil in the world would mean eradicating people. But God is first using this time to redeem people. This is the phase of the plan where God offers the world and every single individual an invitation to receive His grace and to come into relationship with Him. So I'll gladly be patient and endure the brokenness of this life because I want to be part of extending God's gracious invitation to people. Heck, we're supposed to be people who announce the good news about what God has done and what he's inviting us into. So thank goodness that his judge, uh, His justice is delayed, but also thank goodness that it's not denied and there is a time frame that in which all will be made right, all will be made new. And that's where we're going to turn our attention to next week, but we're not done here. Revelation 5 is incredibly important still for understanding now. A moment ago, we noted how Jesus is standing at the center of the throne. Something really profound is going on here that I think we often miss. The drama of Revelation 5 is twofold. It's about the scroll and the drama of who will take and open it, but it's also a ceremony. It's a celebration. And now, what do you call it when someone rises to the throne? What do you call it? It's kind of an older term, I I think it sounds like an older term. Maybe it's not. When someone new rises to the throne, what's it called? It's called a coronation ceremony. In Revelation 5, we watch Jesus ascend his spot on the throne. And of course, this is not the Lord Jesus kicking God the Father off the throne. No, of course not. They rule together. One divine essence, but both unique persons of the Trinity again. This is a direct fulfillment of what you would find in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The Son of Man figure who is Jesus, and Jesus claims to be the Son of Man in the gospel accounts, ascending the throne to receive a kingdom. That's what Daniel seven's about. Revelation five is the exact fulfillment. You can find so many parallels between the two. This is not just about taking the scroll. This is about the coronation of Jesus Christ, the king becoming king in a public space of heaven. He's becoming the king of heaven alongside God, the father. Now let's read these last few verses and make a few comments uh, for today. Revelation 5, 8 through 10. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every nation. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So what do you do at a coronation ceremony or any ceremony for that matter? You sing songs. A new song is sung to celebrate the coronation of Christ the King. Finally, in Revelation 5, 9, we see the answer to the question posed by the mighty angel back in verse 2. Who is worthy is answered by the worship and praise of the Lamb, who is declared to be worthy. This is an inherent worth, a sort of sufficiency to stand in equal authority with God to carry out the plan of redemptive salvation. The worthiness of the Lamb is credited not only to his person, but more emphatically to his work, namely through his death and resurrection. The doxology and the song of the lamb focuses on his redemptive actions. The royal son of God had a mission to accomplish, a conquest to champion prior to being able to open the scroll. The ascribed worthiness is nothing short of the finished work of his law-fulfilling life, death-defeating death, life-giving resurrection, and throne-ascending ascension. And now I want to just point out one more thing for today because this is very relevant to our conversation. Take note on where it says in the song that God's people will reign. They will reign on the earth. The rule of heaven coming down to earth is the plan. That's always been the plan. It's not about and never been about some sort of rapture away from the earth to heaven as a place where we truly belong. No, Heaven is a transient place, a train with a destination. And even here, we see that earth is where the train is coming to. The drama in heaven is this scene showing us that Jesus' mission on earth was to rescue the earth. The coronation of heaven's king was an event in heaven that changed everything about the trajectory of earth. God is now redeeming people who will be part of his new creation order where he reigns as king and all with him reign as his people. Heaven is a world celebrating the victory of Christ and how that means closing the chasm between heaven and earth. The chasm is only temporary. It's still there, but it's only temporary. And those who go to heaven when they die are simply jumping on the train as it heads back to earth to form a new creation. So in conclusion for today, Revelation 5. Uh, shows us that the plan of redemption has been secured because of Jesus's law-fulfilling life, death-defeating death, life-giving resurrection, and his throne-ascending ascension. The scroll is in his hand. He took it. Revelation chapter 6 through 20 present what happens when that scroll is opened. A ton of apocalyptic imagery. Uh, We're not going to spend time in those chapters, not because they aren't important, but because we're staying focused on the topic and the theme of heaven and new creation. The end goal of human history is already written and contained within the scroll, written by God and carried out by God. We are only seeing and will continue to see the unfolding of that story that was written before the foundation of the world. And so next week, we turn our attention to the climax of heaven, the new creation, what it all builds up to. Out of so few scriptures that talk about what heaven is like right now, what we basically know is that people are present with the Lord. They're celebrating God who reigns as the king of heaven and they're celebrating the victory he has done with his uh, redemptive work. They're celebrating and singing and enjoying God and enjoying that in this colorful world of bliss that is hard to communicate into our vernacular because we don't have a concept for it. They're celebrating all of that But it's still an unfolding story, and it hasn't been concluded. Even for those in heaven, the journey is not over. My friends, like we talked about last week, heaven is a world waiting for its wedding. We'll see you next time on Adventures in Theology.